I am tremendously excited about the next few minutes of WGTD's morning show. We are going to be probing into one of the most intriguing stories of the 20th century. The story of an extraordinary friendship. And a friendship that was, in very many respects, most likely much more than a simple friendship. We're talking about the relationship between one of the most famous women of the 20th century, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, first lady, uh, wife of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And we are talking about uh, her, her dear, dear friend over the course of many years, Lorena Hickok, affectionately known as Hick. And the nature of their long relationship, and in particular, the way in which uh, Eleanor Hickok was uh, a very potent influence on Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, is told in an extraordinarily fascinating new book called Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. The book is by Susan Quinn, a highly regarded author of uh, several different books, including Marie Curie, A Life, and Furious Improvisation, How the WPA and a Cast of Thousands Made High Art Out of Desperate Times. That's a book I am very, very anxious to see. And uh, this uh, new book is published by Penguin Press. Again, it's titled Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. Susan Quinn, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I am so excited about this. I think for anybody who knows a bit about American history and knows something about the era of the New Deal and who Eleanor Roosevelt was, I'm sure many people have at least a passing acquaintance with this intriguing woman who was such an important part of Eleanor Roosevelt's life. And yet there's so much to the story than the little bit that, uh, that we might know just from uh, our, our, our vague sense of history. What was your knowledge of Eleanor Hickok uh, ahead of sitting down and, and embarking on your serious research, which led to this book? I mean, before that all happened, what did you know about her and what did you find intriguing about her? I knew that she'd written some really uh, vivid uh, reports about um, uh, conditions on the ground in the Great Depression. I knew that she'd gone out into the countryside and written reports about all kinds of struggling people like coal miners and um, workers in the beet fields in the West and so on. Um, I, so I knew about the reports because I'd written, been writing about um, the WPA and, and the Roosevelt New Deal relief programs and about Harry Hopkins. And these were reports she wrote for him, Harry Hopkins, who was really FDR's number two man and the most important person in terms of the New Deal relief programs. So I knew about that. And then I knew a little bit that she'd also written letters at the same time to Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, so it was really um, working at the FDR library in Hyde Park and uh, starting to read these letters that made me realize that um, there was this really important relationship between Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt. There are over 3,000 letters at the library um, uh, between Eleanor Roosevelt and Hick, and um, that's just probably the tip of the iceberg because I know that there were others that probably Hick destroyed before she left them to the library. So there are these letters, and they're wonderful, and they're full of um, 
uh, uh, lots of details about the Great Depression, very vivid writing, especially by Hick, who was a journalist. But also they're full of the expressions of affection and longing and caring between these two women, particularly the first five or six years of their relationship. So the more I read, uh, the more I realized that that these letters and this story really hadn't been fully told before. It, as you say, it, it's been out there for quite a long time. And actually, um, there was a big three-volume biography by Blanche Wiesen Cook that does talk a lot about the relationship and, and the fact that it was a love relationship. But no one had really focused in on this story between the two of them. So that was, that was what I decided to do. Um, one of the things that intrigues me most about your book is that really the, the main point of it is not whether or not there was a romantic relationship between Eleanor and Hick, although you certainly ex- explore that to, 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 to a great extent. But in, in, in a sense, the greater story is, is, is the other dimensions of this relationship, and in particular, the influence that Eleanor Hickok had on Eleanor Roosevelt in terms of really opening her eyes to mm-hmm. what, was, what was happening in the 1930s. Uh, however... All that being said, you chose to uh, word your subtitle as the love affair that mm-hmm. shaped a first lady. Yeah. So, so clearly, when it comes to characterizing this relationship, whatever it was, uh, you feel like it's it's important to for us to understand it as, uh, among other things, a love affair. Just say yeah. a word about the place that that has in your book. Uh, and in the the portrait that you shaped here of these two mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, we went back and forth a lot about the title and whether it should be love affair or relationship, uh, with relationship being a very kind of cold, abstract word. Uh, and I felt strongly that it was truly a love affair. Uh, and I also felt strongly that even though Eleanor Roosevelt was a, uh, really um, a tremendously um, involved and strong person before she met Lorena Hickok. When she came around to having to be the first lady, it was really Hick who helped her to figure out a way to be a first lady like no other. And that grew out of their deep sympathy for each other. And, and I, I believe love love is the right word for it. You know, when they were together, um it, there's no way, of course, of knowing, you know, you never know what goes on between two people sexually. But I do think, you know, they talked about wanting to hold each other, kiss each other, uh, be together in bed. So all of those things make me think that it was a love affair and a love affair at a t- and in a time when it couldn't really be talked about openly or shared. Um, and probably there are even more letters that we haven't seen, um, which would make it even more convincing. And also, um, I, I felt it, it made sense in a number of ways. Hick, Hick had had another long-term relationship with a woman before she met Eleanor, and she had several afterwards. So she was a lesbian in, uh, in a time when it was very shameful and you didn't talk about it. But Eleanor was also surrounded by women who were in long-term relationships, who were in uh, democratic politics. Her best friends were Nan and Marion, this couple with whom she... Um, built a cottage at Hyde Park and and developed a whole uh, little cottage industry. 
Um, and her other political friends, many of them were uh, couples, of uh, two women couples. Nobody used any of the words we use now. No one said they were lesbian or gay or anything else. But it was a fact of Eleanor's life and of Eleanor's circle. So, so all of those things together made me feel that, and of course they're they're going off on trips together, and um, they're writing about how wonderful it was when they were together. It made me feel that it was something more than just a strong friendship. I think it was a love affair. Um, and, but I agree with you that. Um, Having said that, and nowadays it's not such a big deal, you know, it doesn't have to be the center of the book, and I didn't want it to be, and I didn't want to write a sensational expose, because there was no need to expose it, there was just the need to include it. Absolutely. You I... know, and the rest of the story, I agree about the politics and about how they influence each other and work together uh, in terms of um, exposing and revealing what was going on. For instance... You know, one example was that um, one of Hicks' first jobs when she started to work for the Roosevelt administration was to go down to West Virginia and visit these coal mining families. And uh, she wrote back these vivid reports about conditions there, which were just horrendous. And Eleanor decided to hop in her roadster (laughs) by herself and drive down to West Virginia to check it out. And she and Hick toured these mining uh, camps together. And then out of that grew um, Eleanor's program, first of all, the community Arthurdale, which was a built community um, for these some of these mining families. And that was the first of a whole bunch of commu- actual communities, uh, little towns that were built by the Roosevelt administration for people. And so that was the beginning of a whole of a whole really important Roosevelt initiative, and it grew out of... Eleanor and Hicks collaboration. So they were they worked together in a lot of different ways. Right. And of course if not only does the historical record essentially not acknowledge the sort of depth and intensity of their relationship and the fact that almost certainly it was at least at some point uh, a romantic relationship in every sense of the word, but the historical record also uh, almost to almost entirely neglects the fact that it was uh, Hick leading Eleanor mm-hmm. into this uh, life of, of advocacy and activism. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And, and I think the, the perception has always been uh, that Eleanor was this uh, marvelously progressively minded uh, visionary woman uh, who had this uh, vast compassion for uh, the the forgotten people of, of of the nation and the world, and uh, and not that some of that isn't true to an extent, but uh, but it's it's quite likely that she never would have done what she did if it had not been her dear friend, uh, in a sense, pointing the way. Uh, I mean, is that fair to say, or yeah, is that overstating I it? I th- well, I think that's true. I, I think. I, Eleanor had these wonderful, tremendous ideals, and in some ways uh, she led Hick. For instance, Hick's attitudes towards uh, towards African Americans. Hick had grown up, uh, as you mentioned, not far from uh, where you are in Wisconsin, um, and East. She was born in East Troy, and then she they traveled west to South Dakota. And she, but she grew up with almost no exposure to African Americans, to blacks. And so with some attitudes, which um, 
which uh, were, uh, you know, uh, well, well, let's just say racist in a way, you know, mildly, the kind of attitudes that a lot of people have. Um, and Eleanor was the one who introduced her to. They read. They read things together. They read John uh, John Brown's body and other stories about racism and slavery and so on. And Eleanor was the one who helped Hick with some of those attitudes that she had. But I think that, uh, and I think Eleanor had all of those ideals before she became first lady. What I think Hick helped her with was how to be effective in the world as a first lady in a way that uh, no one had ever been before really since uh you know hick was the one who encouraged her to have these first of all you have to say that one of the reasons they got together was because eleanor was very very unhappy about becoming first lady she had developed her whole career in new york she was involved in politics and teaching and all kinds of things and she and Franklin had uh, developed kind of separate lives. They lived side by side, and they worked together, but their marriage had pretty much, their romantic part of the marriage had ended um, years before in 1918 when uh, Eleanor discovered that Franklin was having an affair with her secretary. And that had been so wounding that she hadn't been able to forget that. And so after that, they agreed to pretty much stay married because they, that was... They had to, otherwise he would have his career would have been over if they'd divorced. So they stayed married, but they had separate lives. And she had, she was had this separate life with with many many women friends. Didn't want to come to Washington and be a first lady. So Hick was the one who was there for her, who understood this, and who helped her to to become this beloved figure. First of all, she encouraged her to have these all-women press conferences, which she did, and that meant a lot of news organizations had to hire women, because in those days there weren't that many women reporters. And she encouraged her to write her, She got the, or they got the idea together, really, for the My Day column, which Eleanor wrote every day, six days a week for the rest of her life. And that was a column in which she described her day. Um, and she became this beloved, eventually this very well-known and then beloved figure, Eleanor did. And a lot of that was, uh, I think, Hick's doing. Hick helped her with her writing. Also, Hick was a much better writer than she and 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 really helped Eleanor to become a better writer. So many, many things about Eleanor's kind of public persona were shaped by Hick. And also, I think Hick's admiration for her at a time when she was feeling very shaky about herself. Hick's listening to all her personal issues was a big part of it. So um, I do think Hick contributed a lot, uh, and a lot more than anyone has acknowledged, uh, to the great person, that the great first lady of the world that Eleanor became in the end. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Susan Quinn about her latest book, which is called Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. Uh, the book focuses on the extraordinary relationship uh, between uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, Lorena Hickok, affectionately known to her friends, including Eleanor, as Hick. Susan Quinn, one of the things I really appreciate about your book is that you give us, I think, just the right amount of background on both of these women, in a sense, ahead of placing them together and telling the story of, of in a sense, who they were as a, as a couple, as a, mm-hmm. as a, as a, a, as a pair of friends. Um, mm-hmm. And 
and and although of course this is especially helpful with someone like Lorena Hickok, who most of us know very little about, I really think you also offer up what uh, what amounts to very helpful background about Eleanor Roosevelt, someone much better known to us, but yet someone where there might be certain things about her background, particularly her early life, that that are really important for us to know as a backdrop to this important friendship. You've touched on a couple of them already, but uh, maybe you could say a word about uh, what you thought was most important to share about the, the, the early portion of Eleanor Roosevelt's life, and uh, in particular, the kinds of, of hurts and disappointments mm-hmm. that, uh, in a sense, she never, ever left entirely behind her. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's important. One of the things that I point out is that these two women came from really opposite ends of the economic spectrum. I mean, Eleanor came from this tremendously privileged family. She was a Roosevelt uh, came from the Teddy Roosevelt branch of the family. Um, Hick, on the other hand, uh, born in East Troy and then uh, traveled west with a father who was trying to make it and who was a, a violent and abusive man, and she wound up being kicked out of the house at 14 and working as a maid and barely making it through high school uh, and then struggling on the way up to a career at AP. So uh, <clears throat> the two women had very different upbringings are very different economic settings, but both of them had suffered, um, had had really sad childhoods. And Eleanor um, particularly had a mother who um, was a belle and very beautiful and who informed Eleanor at an early age that she was homely and would never make it uh, in society, uh, and uh, uh, which hurt Eleanor deeply. Um, and she would, her mother actually called her granny when she was a little girl. So there were these very cruel kind of um, things that came from the mother. And then her, she, uh, she loved her father very much, she adored and idolized him. But he was an alcoholic and he drank himself to death and died when, he, when, when she was only 10. So she was raised by a very Victorian grandmother in a grand house with lots of servants and a governess she hated. Um, and was very lonely, um, uh, and, and actually, I think, was only rescued in a way by going to uh, this girls' school in England. Finally, uh, called where she called Allenswood, where she um, uh, met and kind of made this strong connection with a, <clears throat> a wonderful headmistress uh, who adored her and admired her. And uh, that was what really began to turn her life around. Um, and then she married really early. You know, she was only 20 and uh, jumped into this marriage with Franklin Roosevelt, uh, another Roosevelt. So it was two Roosevelts marrying, um, had children, boom, 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 um, and a very domineering mother who pretty much ran everything. Um, and um, she was very cowed by her and intimidated by her. So it took Eleanor is one of those people who, I think, more than most of us, grew and developed and changed and got stronger and stronger as she as she grew older. Right. I was going to say uh, of the of the towering figures of the 20th century, um, she might be the single most unlikely. <laughs> that yeah. is, if we could somehow 
uh, be a fly on the wall when Eleanor was five or ten or fifteen yeah. or twenty. Never in a million years would it's we true. imagine yeah. the woman Absolutely. she was to become or to grow right. into. She was considered, you know, she was this timid little thing, and she, she, she hated being a debutante and all the coming out and things that she was required to do by her upper class family. Uh, and she wrote a lot and very movingly about how frightened she always was. It's interesting that that FDR's kind of most famous words are the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, and she um, wrestled with fear all her life. She had, had she she had this one memory of um, being in Italy with her father, and there, she, they were riding donkeys, and there was a steep slope that you had to ride down on the donkey, and she was afraid and couldn't do it. And her father um, accused her of being timid and said, "We don't have you know we don't have cowards in our family," um, and that that. Uh, stung her terribly and it was something she referred back to all her life and she was always overcoming her her fears um she taught herself to to dive for instance she'd never been able to to, to swim and she taught herself to swim and to dive and to ride horses uh to do a lot of things that were hard for her and and that was kind of her modus operandi in general was taking on things um as she said at one point, do the thing you are afraid to do. Um, and that was pretty much how she lived her life. Hmm. Um, as for uh, Lorena Hickok, uh, hers is, as you've already touched on, was also uh, a, a, an unhappy childhood, uh, even if she was born in a place as lovely and seemingly idyllic <laughs> as East Troy, Wisconsin. But, uh, but there was uh, all kinds of of sorrow and sadness that was tied up in her life, and mm-hmm. and she too uh, is is someone in which uh, we would not necessarily uh, imagine great things were were in her future. Uh, yeah. Just tell us a, a, a bit more about uh, the unhappy beginning of Lorena Hickok's life. Well, she had uh, this father who was really violent and who uh, cruel, really, and uh, uh, beat her with barrel staves. Um, and she, she, from the early on, it's interesting and as a theme uh, with Eleanor, from early on she said uh, when he would beat her, she would say, you wouldn't dare do this. She would think to herself, you wouldn't dare do this to me if I were bigger. Um, and uh, so finally, after leaving home at 14, being kicked out really after her mother died, her father found another woman and they asked her to leave. So she went out and worked as a maid um, in other people's houses um, and then barely graduated from, from high school, was kind of res- rescued by an aunt from Chicago, and then did graduate uh, from high school, but then um, didn't make it in college. She tried a little bit. She went to Lawrence College, actually, in Appleton, Wisconsin. She tried that a couple times. And I don't know the details of what happened, but it was something to do with not getting into a sorority. And you can sort of imagine, I mean, this woman was was kind of um, a little bit, she wasn't, she wasn't fat exactly, but she was kind of husky and strong and mannish, probably awkward, um, you know, somebody that, who wouldn't have an easy time getting into a sorority. Right. <laughs> and, and, and I know you, you quote, I think, a, a letter from a relative of hers or something and who uh, talks about 
Lorena needing to try to get her anger under control. Yeah. And so without yeah. spelling out any of the specifics, it's it's clear that, I mean, one way to describe it would be that she maybe had, was going through life at that point with kind of a chip on her shoulder in a sense. Oh, yeah. uh, and, uh, and and one can see how that, that could uh, you know, rub certain people uh, the wrong way. Well, ulti- ultimately, uh, she does uh, secure for herself the opportunity to use her great gifts as uh, as a writer and one of the first places she actually writes is right down the road from us in Milwaukee mm-hmm. uh, and yep. as an opera fan and a professor of music my eyes lit up when I saw names in your book like Geraldine Farrar and Nellie mm-hmm. Melba and especially oh. uh-huh. Ernestine schumann Heinck, uh, all great singers who apparently had come to town to perform in Milwaukee and uh and Lorena Hickok had the opportunity to meet them and write about them. Yeah. Uh, although you tell a one amusing story that maybe you would share with us about, uh, was it, I'm trying to remember. Geraldine Farrar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, she, like you, was a big opera fan. And uh, and she adored opera, and she really adored and worshipped all these women. Um, and uh, But her first encounter, and that was, I think, when she was at the Milwaukee Sentinel, was uh, with uh, Geraldine Farrar's, um, well, press agent and everybody else, and she she want, she tells the story. And this is, of course, Lorena Hickok making a story out of a non-story because it's a story about how she didn't get to see Geraldine Farrar, the great singer, but um, wound up ruining her fake fur coat in pouring rain and ha- conducting an interview with Geraldine Ferraro's little dog. <laughs> and and uh, this uh, tells you something about Hicks' creativity. Uh, and she, yeah, she she loved these kind of uh, the, uh, opera stars and loved, well, she loved celebrity of all kinds, uh, was very attracted to that. She loved sports, too. She was a big sports fan. She was somebody who was very engaged and interested in a lot of aspects of life. And uh, also, I think... Uh, she, I, I agree with you that she did have a chip on her shoulder, probably always. She also um, had tremendous empathy for people who were down and out. And she wrote some of her best stories, at first at the Milwaukee Sentinel, and then she went on to the Minneapolis uh, Tribune, where she that was really the closest thing she had to a home, and she was there for a bunch of years, and that was a really important step for her. But she always was writing about people like the organ grinder whose monkey was stolen, hmm. or the worker who was um, crawled under a bridge and and was going to starve himself to death because he uh, he couldn't find work. You know, she would write these, or women, young women coming to the big city, to Minneapolis, which was the big city, um, from the farm and getting exploited. Um, those were her kind of stories, uh, and she was always very good. And that was why later, when she finally left the AP, um, partly because she could no longer be a reporter because of her relationship with her close relationship with Eleanor, but then when she went on to work. For the uh, for the New Deal and for the Roosevelt administration, again, she was writing about people who were down on their luck in major ways. Mm. Uh, Your phrase at one point is that she had that is Lorena Hickok had enormous empathy for outcasts, and yes. of course, part of it was because she had spent so much of her early life uh, 
experiencing that same kind of pain, the pain mm-hmm. of being an outcast, of feeling like one was on the outside looking in and yeah. uh, not welcome at the table. And uh, so this was something that certainly never left her. Right. And you can imagine for somebody who was not welcome at the table to be living in the White House, which she did, you know, for the first, for the really most of the Roosevelt years, most of the 13 years that FDR was president, she had this room at the White House, which was next to Eleanor's work office. And uh, the two of them, as a result, saw each other regularly when Hick was at the White House. Uh, So all of that for Hick was, uh, uh, well, just very exciting and also very interesting to me as a writer because I was able to uh, through Hick, kind of see some of the intimate events of, of of things that happened at the White House during that during that time. We're speaking with Susan Quinn about her book Eleanor and Hick: The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady. We are talking, of course, about Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, the wife of of our thirty second president Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but a, a figure of towering significance in her own right, and Lorena Hickok affectionately known as Hick, a gifted writer who became one of the most important friends in uh, Eleanor Roosevelt's life. And uh, it is almost certain that for a time their relationship was actually a romantic one. Susan Quinn, explain the circumstances under which uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok met for the first time. They had, in 1932, um, FDR was running for president for the first time, and he um, did his campaigning from a train, and he famously traveled all across the country and had these whistle stops everywhere. Um, And um, Eleanor, who was not so crazy about campaigning, uh, reluctantly came along, and uh, Lorena Hickok, who was the top one of the top women AP reporters at the time came along too. And uh, at first, Hick really wanted to mostly cover FDR, but then she increasingly became interested in Eleanor. She didn't want to, she wasn't interested in covering just an ordinary first lady. She didn't want to get stuck back on the women's page talking about clothes and teas and all the things that most first ladies uh, were about. Uh, but she started to realize that Eleanor Roosevelt was somebody very different. And uh, so she began to lobby for the job of covering Eleanor. And uh, her boss gave that to her and said, she's all yours, Hick, have fun. And that was the beginning of this relationship. At first it was Hick covering Eleanor and writing about her and, and very sympathetically and writing about her um, without telling any of the many secrets of the Roosevelt family. Uh, And then that trust really developed into something more, real affection. And by the time uh, FDR assumed the presidency in March of uh, 1933, uh, the relationship had grown from uh, a professional one into really um, a love relationship. Right. One of the things that I think really helps us understand how this relationship developed as it did was that you, uh, in addition to describing the, these two women and, and what it was that 
was intriguing about each to the other. But you also describe uh, the intense unhappiness in Eleanor Roosevelt's life at this point in time. And and aside from the the one matter, which is usually where it's left, and namely uh, kind of the uh, unhappiness of her marriage to Franklin and the, uh, way, the way in which that marriage had evolved into something, uh, in a sense, quite incomplete. But you, 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 you paint a very vivid and ultimately really sad portrait of all of the other reasons that Eleanor Roosevelt had to be uh, for being quite sad at this moment in her life, other sources of sadness from her own family. Just sketch for our listeners what I'm talking about, because I think this is a really significant factor uh, in in who she was and uh, with what she was contending and and why this new friend, Lorena Hickok, became so desperately important to her. Yes, well, she you know she had uh, since uh, that affair in 1918. She had really grown as a person and developed a lot of interests, including teaching. She was a part owner of a school in New York, in New York City, school for girls, and she was doing a lot of writing. Um, and she was very involved with Val Kill, this little um, industry. Uh, cottage industry that she and her two friends uh, had set up in New York. So all of these things were happening. She had, uh, she kind of knew, she knew more than most women about what it was like to be first lady because her uncle Teddy had been president and his wife Edith had been just a superb first lady. So she knew and she felt, she felt very insecure about her ability to be that kind of a elegant uh, ornament to her husband, she, what she came to call being Mrs. R, and she she never she never liked that role, and now uh, she it was she was going to have to play that role. I mean that was the big expectation in those days. Um, it, it, it's interesting, just as a little side comment that I'm just reading today that Melania Trump uh, is really the first uh, first lady who hasn't come to Washington and set herself up in that role, you know, and it looks like she's not going to. But in Eleanor's time, that was not a choice. So she knew she was going to have to perform these functions. So all of those things really, and then, of course, her Washington for her brought back these memories of the affair because that was where it happened when FDR was uh, secretary, assistant secretary of the Navy. They had been in Washington with young children, and that's when that affair happened. So it was all very much what she didn't want to do and uh and that she so you know when having hick by her side uh really helped they actually undertake uh quite an interesting road trip and you suggest that this trip was uh, a really dramatic moment uh in their relationship and also in a sense signifies just how close they had become describe to our listeners what this road trip was Yes, well, that first summer after FDR became president, they uh, got in Eleanor's Roadster. She had this really pretty snazzy convertible that she loved, uh, and they got in the Roadster and um, took this trip up through Maine and into Canada Canada, and into the uh, French provinces, uh, Quebec and the provinces, um, at the 
the Quebec Peninsula. Anyway, so they they took this long trip together, um, and it was it was magical for both of them. Um, I think in general that um, car trips, road trips, were something that that women could do. Women who loved each other could do. Uh, it was a way to be together and uh, escape scrutiny at a time when such things were but shameful and even criminal, you know, and they could go off and do this. So it, it was a very happy time that Hick remembered always. It was, it, and and the Secret Service had, in the beginning, had wanted to go along with them, and they had managed to convince them that uh, they weren't going to be kidnapped. This was the time of the Lindbergh kidnapping, so the concern was they might be kidnapped. And Eleanor said that convinced the Secret Service that it would be very hard to fit them into a trunk because <laughs> one of them was <laughs> one of them was over six feet and the other one weighed about two hundred pounds. Uh, so anyway, that was the the joking about it. But the Secret Service made them carry a gun in the glove compartment. They had a gun; it was not loaded, and they didn't know how to use it, but <laughs> it was there. And um, and off they went. Hmm. Uh, and you uh, tell us uh, it was really the last time probably in her whole life that Eleanor Roosevelt, in a sense, could be out and about yeah. anonymously. I mean, she yeah. had anonymity, precious anonymity on this trip that uh, would would become a, a very precious and probably right. even non-existent commodity for the yeah. rest of her days. Yeah, they were pretty amazed that they went up into the maritime provinces and People up there didn't seem to even have gotten the news that Franklin Roosevelt was president. So, you know, they didn't recognize her. They were more interested in her car than they were in her. And so that was that was wonderful. And it, it, it but as you say, Greg, it didn't last because uh, Eleanor became famous, mm. and uh, partly with a lot of help from Hick, she became this uh, nationally known, famous figure who was who would turn up here, there, and everywhere. She was. Eleanor was, there were jokes about Eleanor, um, you know, showing up. Um, there's a New Yorker cartoon of her showing up at a coal mine, and the coal miner is saying, well, I'll be darned, there is Mrs. Roosevelt, you know, with a coal miner's hat on. Uh, so she, she, and she did travel a lot and uh, meet and greet, you know, hundreds of thousands of people over her, her time as First Lady. In the section of the book called Becoming a Team, where you really spell out the story of of uh, what uh, Eleanor Hickok uh, did and the way in which she really steered Eleanor Roosevelt uh, into a, a, a life of advocacy of, and, and act- activism. Um, you also describe how uh, the dynamics of their personal relationship were not entirely... Uh, uh, tranquil. <laughs> that is, uh, you, you describe many instances in the letters in which uh, they would long to be together when they yeah. were apart, but then they would be together and various tensions would sometimes uh, e- emerge or misunderstandings would occur and, uh, uh-huh. and and Hick would get impatient and storm off or whatever. And so so there is a bit of volatility to this relationship. And again, that that's uh, I, I suspect something that none of us have ever known anything about until your book. Describe just a, 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 a bit about the emotional complexity of this uh, relationship in this respect. Yes, uh, it's true. Uh, when they were apart, they, they longed to be together and exchange affections. And Elmer would say, you know, can I hug you right away? And I want to hold you and all those things. 
And then when they got together, often there would be tension. And it was usually Hick being very jealous, I mean, jealous of Eleanor's other friends and Eleanor's many, many um, pe- people who loved Eleanor, and there were lots of them. Uh, and that was hard for Hick. Uh, Hick had said at one point, you know, I... I I love you as a person, uh, but I love the person, but not the personage. And the personage was on view a lot of the time because Eleanor just had all of these obligations and all these people who wanted something, one little piece of her. So she was never really exclusively Hicks. And also they, they, they were just very polar opposites in terms of their temperaments. Eleanor, of course, kept everything very contained, always a lady, Never used the swear word. Um, Hicks could swear with the best of them, you know, with drank and smoked, and was very emotionally explosive. And uh, so, and that, and Eleanor liked that about her. She liked the fact that she was so passionate, you know, and so passionate about people and about people's struggles. And uh, and her her writing was full of her passion. So Eleanor liked that, but it also made it difficult to have a relationship. And uh, so they, there was a lot of back and forth, and, there, and, and uh, increasingly, um, Hick wanted more from Eleanor than Eleanor was willing or able to provide in terms of time and attention and affection. So, um, so that became a big sticking point, and there was a point even at which it, sound, it seemed from the correspondence like Eleanor was saying, maybe you should find somebody else. And uh, when that started to happen, I think bells went off for Hick, alarm bells. And she realized that she was going to have to get some distance. And she actually absented herself from Washington for a few months, um, and, during which time Eleanor started to want her to come back and feel hurt that she hadn't come back and and when she did come back, Hick had kind of gotten control of somehow some of that jealousy and accepted that the relationship was changing now and that they were going to be friends and continue to write and care about each other, but that the passionate part of it had probably ended. And that was after about four or five years. So, uh, And then it's interesting to see how it evolved because of... Both of them that had to figure out the rest of their lives, uh, which they did always in connection with each other. But Eleanor, of course, became this world figure, and Hick watched from the sidelines and struggled. As we read the letters, or as I mean, as you read the letters, how drastically, if if at all, did the tone of those letters change from the point that the relationship cooled, at least in, in its romantic aspect? Uh, or did the incredibly exuberant, affectionate language still flow very freely between them? It changed. It changed. The incredibly exuberant language definitely changed uh, and became much more telling about their lives. One thing that didn't change, though, was... Um, confiding in each other about the the most painful aspects of their lives. And that's one of the things that I think is so valuable about the correspondence because um, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote a lot and published a lot, you know, sort of nonstop with her memoirs and her My Day column. Um, She just churned out the words. 
but the public version of her life that's in all those books and columns is uh, very upbeat, um, and there's just not a lot of room there, understandably, for what she was going through in her private life, both with Franklin and his flirtations, which were very painful to her, including the fact that he, when he died, he was with this woman, Lucy Mercer, the woman with whom he'd had the affair in 1918. Uh, they had gotten back together. Um, that had happened, and, and but also all of her children, her four boys and her daughter, struggled a lot with their private lives and their marriages. There were many divorces among them and lots of difficulties. And all of that um, is in the letters between Eleanor and Hick, or a lot of it. You really see that, and you really see at the time of um, her her brother, Hall, was like her father, an alcoholic, and drank himself to death during the Roosevelt years in the White House. And all of those things are in the letters between Eleanor and Hick. So the, the it changed, but it, it, it never, it, it was always, it was always deeply honest. Hmm. Are you surprised that they preserved all of these letters? You, you touched on the fact earlier that Eleanor Hickok evidently did destroy some of her letters, mm-hmm. presumably maybe some that had uh, even more intensely personal content. But mm-hmm. I, I find myself a bit surprised that, uh, that, that, that they held these mm-hmm. letters and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and made it possible in a sense, for the world to ultimately see them. Yeah, yeah, it is surprising. What had happened earlier was that always um, Hick had thought that she would write a biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, um, and so Eleanor uh, would give her things, including both sides of this correspondence, to to go through and to edit, maybe with the idea that she would write a biography. Eleanor's very... Uh, Amazingly um, tolerant of a uh, lots of of uh, willing willing to expose herself. Let's say that at least indirectly through these letters, um, and she didn't have a sense of her importance in a way. You know, even though everyone else did, uh, she was sort of humble in that way. And so she gave the letters to Hick and allowed Hick to do what she wanted with them, and Hick decided. Um, to she got rid of some, but she decided to keep most and to give them to the the library at, with the stipulation that they could be open ten years after she died, um, thinking that a lot of the important actors by that time would be dead. Um, and uh, so that's what happened. And some people at the time, um, and certainly I think some family members, really regretted that. I felt it was unfortunate, and the woman who first wrote about those letters uh, wrote, wrote Doris Faber was her name, and she wrote a book in which she she said that she really didn't want to write about the letters, and she didn't want them to be open to the public, and she even asked the librarians at Hyde Park to, to lock them up again for another 20 years. Uh, but there they were, and so she decided to write her book, and it's kind of a protective book that tries to make it look like it was Lorena Hickok who really wanted to exploit the relationship, and and that Eleanor really didn't didn't love Hick the way Hick loved her, et cetera. So you know it's kind of one-sided in that way, and a little bit accusing Hick of of exploiting the relationship. 
So, um, uh, you know, there there was controversy about the letters being out in the public. Hmm. Well, they certainly uh, are a, a very important part of your uh, amazing book. Eleanor and Hick, The Love Affair That Shaped a First Lady, a fascinating book, start to finish, public, published by Penguin Press, and the author, Susan Quinn. Susan Quinn, thank you so much for uh, all that you did to uh, make this book uh, such a riveting account of, of these two extraordinary women and their extraordinary relationship. And thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. I have enjoyed this. I have too, Greg. Thanks so much. And to get more information on this and other books by Susan Quinn, visit her website, susanquinnbooks.com.